Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access so that in light of the COVID-19 health crisis, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this health emergency. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel, and our topic today is estate planning and financial planning for families with unmarried partners. So let's get started, and and uh, before let's introduce our guests. And we have Jennifer Gibbs, uh, the managing partner at Gibbs Tillery LLC, and Kellen, Kelly Napier, a partner with Brennan Napier Elder Law. And so, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about what you, who you what you do. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I hope everyone is safe and well this morning. My name is Jennifer Gibbs. I'm the managing partner for Gibbs Tillery. We're a small boutique law firm in downtown Decatur. Uh, we uh, specialize in family law, business law, and estate planning. And Kelly, how about you? Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Robert and Craig, for having us here. I'm Kelly Napier with Brandon Napier Elder Law. We're an estate planning and elder law practice. And we serve mostly clients in the metro Atlanta area. Jennifer, you say that you do family law and estate planning. So this basically you deal with terminations of both marriages and life. That's correct. We're, we're there from the beginning of life to the end of life, the, the cy- cycle of life. Uh, so before I, I let me just ask kind of a funny question to start off with you then. T- tell us generally when we're dealing with unmarried, fa- unmarried uh, couples, uh, what's the difference between a divorce and a just kind of separating out when you're when you're ending your relationship? Well, that's a great question. Um, cohabitation agreements in in Georgia aren't necessarily recognized by law per se. So it's it's important to meet with an attorney to talk about what assets you have as an unmarried couple um, in case there is a separation or a parting of the ways. One of the things that I found fascinating as I prepared to to do this show is um, I I tried to understand the uh, number of of couples who actually uh, may may experience or be be an unmarried uh, relationship. So uh, this is a 2019 study by Pew Research, which said 59% of people ages 18 to 44 have lived with an unmarried partner in some time, sometime in their lives. Um, and um, so, you know, right now, according to, I think, recent census data, something like 14% of couples who live together today are unmarried. So literally- I have to correct you, Robert. That is the 2010 census. Ah, okay. The 2020 census data came out Monday. That's right. So uh, it- pre- I think the number's going to go up to why I say that. Correct. But, but the ultimate point is it's millions and millions of people who are affected by this. So, so Jennifer, you mentioned a cohabitation agreement. And maybe um, even though you've indicated that Georgia may not necessarily um, 
if you will, implement those the way the parties intended, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the concept and we can work from there. Yeah, and cohabitation agreements might be recognized in other states. Obviously, I'm licensed to practice law in Georgia, so I'm speaking about Georgia law. The power of contract in any state is strong. And so what parties can do, unmarried parties, is is seek legal representation to talk about their assets if they can put it in a contract and discuss how those assets would be distributed upon um, that couple breaking up or separating. And by the way, that even if it's not enforceable, it's still a roadmap for the family as they're moving forward in their relationship. Kelly, let me switch the question to you. When you're dealing, uh, not necessarily with estate planning yet, but when you're dealing with people who come in for estate planning or perhaps administration of the estate, how many unmarried couples actually have a cohabitation agreement in your practice? We've never seen one in our practice. (laughs) Mm, That's kind of what I thought. How many, um, uh, again to Kelly, how many uh, uh, couples are coming in um, before they have children or, or, or extended families to come in and do estate planning between them? Because that too would solve what happens if you at least have death, at least you would have thought about how you own property and title and things of that nature. Yeah, what we've seen is that families tend to do their estate planning at three general times. As they're having children, as they're getting ready to retire, and as one of them or both of them are getting uh, debilitating or progressive disease diagnoses or starting to need long-term care. So We find that too, except we find it happens. That's when the predator comes in and redoes their estate plan, which is a risk as you get older in case you hadn't done your planning before. There's, there's one other situation, and we, we don't do any estate planning, but, but my sense is a lot of people also come in before they're taking a, a, a significant trip overseas or something, you know, they're going to go climb Mount Everest and figure, well, if I don't make it, maybe I ought to get my affairs. I think maybe the answer is they should. Let's ask, do they? Do they we come in on before they We tend to get those phone calls, like the week before people are leaving for trips they've been planning for six to 12 months. A week is often not long enough for us to get their planning in place. So they still wind up going on the trip without any estate planning in place. So just to echo on that, I would agree. We tend to see, as Kelly spoke about, before people travel over a large body of water, we get calls. um, Hey, I'm leaving in a week. Can we get an estate plan? So I think, Robert, to go back to your point, the longer the trip, the, the more we hear from people for estate planning needs. You do realize it is more dangerous to drive down Roswell Road at any time of the day than it is to take a long trip? Right. We don't get those Roswell Road calls, though, for some reason. But we have in the last year, um, we've done a lot of estate planning, especially for unmarried couples. Dealing is it with because of COVID? That, yeah, that people are... People are realizing that there's real risk. They've had a friend, they've had a family member become very sick, need to be hospitalized, and they want, they realize it's time to take some precautions and get some planning in place. Well, let's take a step back. So you're 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 an unmarried couple, you've decided to cohabitate and have a long-term relationship, and you're gonna live together. What are some of the issues they should be thinking about? 
Um, either one of you. I'm sorry. I didn't say a name. <laughs> Jennifer? Kelly? Well, let, let's start with Jennifer. Sorry. That was my fault. I mean, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about what Kelly said um, first. We've seen an uptick in COVID, and I think that's um, also because people are thinking about their own mortality. They've had people close to them sick, and also they've had time on their hand. I think uh, estate planning oftentimes gets put on the back burner because no one, quite frankly, wants to think about their own demise. Um, so when unmarried couples come to us for estate planning needs, they need to think about what their current assets are, um, are they considering those joint or separate assets and how they would like those distributed? Yeah, and I would even add on top of that, one of the things that often in the last year, especially, but often even before the last year, spurs unmarried couples is thinking about health care. That in Georgia and in most states, if you're not married to someone, you are very far down the list. In Georgia, you're number seven after cousins to be able to make healthcare decisions for your partner that you're not married to. In some states, you don't have any rights at all to make decisions for a partner you're not married to. And, and so, and I think that's one of the the points that. Um, you know, I, I think the lay public, they hear estate planning and they think, you know, the Rockefellers or Bill Gates or, you know, oh, I don't need that. Or Robert Bork. Uh, I was I was I was trying not to be uh, rub it in your face, Craig. But um, the 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 reality is that that I, I don't think folks understand that if you don't do something, that just as a matter of, of trying to take care of your property and, and, if you will, not get things tied up forever, the state has rules about what happens. So how do you solve the not being number seven on the list, Kelly? You get an advanced directive for healthcare. So Georgia has this document that lets you name a healthcare agent. It lets you tell them what your healthcare wishes are. And it lets you limit some of their powers if you don't want them to have powers to do certain things like donate your organs after you've died. I've looked at that form and it's lots and lots of pages. How long, how hard is it to fill that form out? It is surprisingly easy. I will tell you it was written by lawyers. Um, and so there's a section where you only initial things you don't want. So it is confusing, uh, but you can get it at any hospital. You can get it at most healthcare facilities. It's very easy to access. The state of Georgia has it up on their website. If you download it from the state, it is very long because it is in very large font. Um, but if you get it down to a normal font, it's only five or six pages. I would note it has instructions. Lots of instructions, especially if you get it from the state. And I think, again, that's something, uh, and maybe Jennifer, you can speak to this, that, that lay people don't necessarily, perhaps don't even think about the reality that if, you know, if, if your partner or, or a loved one is injured and is in the hospital, the hospital has certain rules and the doctors have certain rules and you just can't go in and stamp your feet and say, well, I'm their partner, I'm this, I'm that. So much of what we're talking about are things that, um, you know, on, on one perspective, you're doing for the ones you love to make life easier for them if you're hurt or injured or heaven forbid die. So, so let's ask the question in the inverse. What happens if you separate? It, it, can you un, unring that bell of the appointment of the healthcare directive? Does a, can it be triggered by an event 
that I want this person unless we're not living together or divorced or whatever. Jennifer, do you know? Yeah, you would you would need to redo your advanced healthcare directive at that point. Our firm office offers a basic estate planning package, which is a will, advanced healthcare directive, and durable financial power of attorney. As Kelly spoke to, it's important to have that advanced healthcare so that you're higher up on the list and not number seven. I would also encourage unmarried couples to think about a durable financial power of attorney, which has the same parameters as an advanced healthcare directive, but now we're talking about finance and money and naming your partner as that agent. So the advanced healthcare directive and the durable financial power of attorney are documents that are living documents while you are alive, why the will takes care of um, your assets and your estate upon passing. Yeah, and Jennifer, I would add that durable financial power of attorney is the most important document that any of us can have. On the healthcare side, we have a medical consent statute. There's a list of family members and eventually an adult friend in Georgia who can make healthcare decisions for you. We have no financial consent statute. There's no such thing. So without the financial power of attorney, no one else can manage your financial affairs. I have an odd question. So a lot of couples who are getting together either either choose not to get married because they're against marriage choose not to get married because they're not quite ready for that step, but they are ready to live together or to be together for a long period of time. And yet the trust level of a power of attorney where essentially you can do anything behind my back. Are there any protections that you could include in a power of attorney that would make a couple more comfortable giving their, uh, their partner so much power? Kelly, you can, and you can answer. I, it's hard to know who I'm talking to because I'm looking <laughs> at you both, but we're on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. You can, you can carve out very specific things that your power of attorney can do. That's a very customizable document. Another thing you can do is you can make it spring into effect upon a certain event in the future. So what we see often is it springs into effect when you get a letter from your doctor that says that you're incapable of managing your financial affairs. I typically warn my clients against that because that letter is so hard to get from most doctors, but that might be, sometimes that's what clients need to feel safe about having this document in place for when they do need the help in the future. Kelly, I mean, Jennifer, what do you think about what, what Kelly said, the springing power that doesn't come into effect until you're disabled or something? I totally agree with her. And, and when I counsel clients, I say the same thing. The difficulty with the inca incapacitation clause is getting that documentation from the hospital and the doctors, particularly if something severe has happened. But there is a level of trust, Craig, like you stated earlier, to have the document be effective upon signature. So as Kelly stated, you can make that document as, as specific as you wish. And, and we spend a lot of time going over that with our clients. So let's, let's, let's assume a client has come to you and doesn't want the springing power for the reasons you said. What protections would you recommend, Jennifer, that they consider? Uh, could you clarify what, what protections? Well, you say you have options that, that within the document that is very flexible. What would you suggest to them? This might be something you think about. I'll give you an example, disclosure or accountings or something. What would you recommend? 
Well, I mean, as, as Kelly stated, that document can cover everything. So it can cover everything from the ability to sell stock to the ability to sell real estate, um, to manage money. And so if people aren't comfortable with some of those, say that, that they own the home and, and a partner has come in to live with them recently and they're not comfortable with them selling their, having the ability to sell the house, we can take that out of the durable financial power of attorney. So let me, we've talked about springing. How about unspringing when, when the relationship is, is over or, you know, if they're married a divorce? Uh, I'm, I'm presuming that as a matter of law on a divorce, those documents are not necessarily um, set aside. So there has to be some affirmative action taken. Um, and, and certainly for an unmarried couple, there would need to be some affirmative act taken to, if you will, unring, unspring <laughs> the, those documents. Am, am I correct on that? You're, ab you're absolutely correct, Robert. Um, in a case of divorce, the parties are divorced, but their documents, their wills, their durable financial power of attorney, their health care directives, those stand until they're redrafted and those other documents go away. The same with unmarried couple. If there is a breakup and they're not changing the, the executor or the beneficiaries in that will, that document will stand until that is revised. And if, if I can Absolutely. add to that, we often see situations where the, you mentioned the word beneficiary, not only in, in, in a will, but life insurance, bank accounts, joint bank accounts, real property that may be held in joint tenancy, uh, things like that need to be addressed as well so that um, you know, there aren't arguments afterwards about who gets what. You're so listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port, and we are with the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasselwich Frankel. We're talking today with Jennifer Gibbs, managing partner with Gibbs Tillery, and Kelly Napier, a partner with Brandon Napier Elder Law. And we're talking about estate and financial planning for families with unmarried partners. Let, let, me, let me follow up on Robert's question. So when a relationship stops, the, the, these, these documents are in place. Do you see or do you recommend that the documents have, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make up a word, a termination clause that says something like, if we don't live together or we separate or whatever the magic words are, this document goes poof. Have either of you thought of that, Kelly or, or Jennifer? Well, I feel like I've spoken a lot, so I was going to defer to Kelly. Okay, Kelly, is that something that, does that make sense or is that silly? Yeah, we've absolutely been able to draft that into some documents and wills actually are revoked by marriages and divorces. To but the not by separation of unmarried couples. Right, but not by separation. So that is one advantage of marriage is if it ends in divorce, the ex-spouse is no longer the executor. It is no longer a beneficiary. And under your will, it doesn't affect any of those other beneficiaries that Robert mentioned, life insurance, retirement accounts, bank accounts. You still have to redo all of those. And I want to go to that in a second, but I want to ask one question first. And then I know Robert wants to talk about joint accounts and stuff because he knows more than I do. But you, you were talking about limitations and powers of attorney and the considerations that you're seeing. At Gasowitz Frankel, we really only see when there's problems. So I'm going to I make that acknowledgement up front. But the majority of powers of attorneys that we see do not use any limitations. It basically says you can do anything in the world that I can do. 
And when we get the opportunity to talk to the estate planning lawyer who drafted it or to whoever is, is arguing over it, we find that most people just sign the document as, and they want the total without much thought. Are your clients actually using some of the protections or are they mostly saying, I want broad powers? Uh, Kelly? We start with the broadest possible powers. And then as we're reviewing the document with the client, we figure out their comfort level on the powers and we'll remove some powers as we go. But the vast majority of our clients sign the broadest possible powers we can think of. And Kelly, just, just to follow up slightly on what Craig asked, would it, would it be appropriate to have in, in, as a default in, in the powers um, that it is terminated, you know, if we, whatever, separate for 30 days, I mean, what, you know, whatever trigger you have, is, is that something that would be wise to sort of have as, as always there and taken out later or put in, you know, only after discussion? That's a tough one. Um, as elder law attorneys, we're always looking forward to what happens when we have that incapacity. And we're trying to make sure the family can apply for public benefits, preserve assets for incapacity purposes in the future. So for me, I'd be uncomfortable starting with, let's limit this and asking the families if they want to expand it. I would, because we're lucky we're on the front end where people are still getting along with one another. Um, that we don't have to think quite as hard about some of those fights, but we definitely talk about trust and who's the most capable person on the front end to try to avoid some of those issues that you all see. So, Robert, you uh, you would you would mention to me before the show that you're seeing a lot of issues on who's on the bank accounts, who's on the beneficiaries. Uh, why don't you Why don't you kind of shift to that so we can talk a little bit more? about some of the practicals of the unmarrieds and then get into the estate planning. Sure. Um, Craig often says that no matter what your client tells you about who's the beneficiary of their life insurance or brokerage accounts or bank accounts, they're almost always wrong. And, and you know, so, so I think um, certainly on the front end, as, as you were just saying, Kelly, it's important to make sure that's all straight. Um, because if the beneficiary designations are wrong, um, your assets may not go to where you expect them to go. And, and for example, uh, you know, we've been involved in litigation with folks who have been divorced literally for over a decade. And one of the ex-spouses passes away and Shazam, you know, Prudential sends the ex-spouse, who's hopefully, uh, you know, gotten on with her life, uh, a letter saying, "Congratulations, not congratulations, our condolences. Where do we send the million dollars?" And of course, the new family is all up in arms. And uh, as lawyers, we know that uh, the, the insurance companies must follow the beneficiary designations. And so I do want to mention something because this will apply to unmarried couples. If you don't have a beneficiary designation and you forget to fill that out, it's going to go to your estate, which means it's going to go to your family and not the unmarried partner. So, so Jennifer, what do you recommend on beneficiary designations and, and joint bank accounts or real estate or how you should start your finances as an unmarried couple as you're learning to live together? What is, what is your general recommendation to that, to that, part, that partnership? 
And I think that goes back to the issues of trust. How, you know, if this is a, a new relationship, how much do you, do you trust uh, that person? Are you going to put them on joint accounts right away? Um, are you going to make them your beneficiary? I, I, like Kelly's firm, we always encourage people when they meet with us to look at their current beneficiaries because sometimes it's a parent that they named 10 years ago that they now you know, want their partner or thought their partner was on it. Um, and so I think it's a level of trust and communication. I think um, with all of the estate planning um, needs, it's a level of communication. It's, it's being pragmatic, it's talking to each other and making sure that you go and get these documents in place to protect both individuals. Yeah, I can't tell you how many clients I have in their 80s who have life insurance policies and the named beneficiary is their parents who have been deceased for 30 years. So, so uh, Kelly, you had mentioned something and, and, it, and, it, and it triggered a, I wrote a note down to myself as they age. So, so let's go to the next step. They're, they're aging and now we're talking about providing for our loved one who we may have been with for many, many years. Um, and you talked about applying for public assistance. Uh, explain what you meant by that. Yeah, so when we get to long-term care, we don't have a lot of options for how we pay for that. And it's kind of expensive. So long-term care, I'm talking home care in your home, which is about $25 an hour, assisted living, which is gonna run three to $7,000 a month, or nursing home care, which in Metro Atlanta is running seven to $17,000 a month. So we've got pretty expensive care and very few of us have that kind of income. And so there's two real public benefits that help folks pay for long-term care. If we have wartime veterans, so anyone who served any time the country was at war. My grandmother served in World War II in Dublin, Georgia. She never went overseas. She was still a wartime veteran. She was a wave. And so she was eligible for a benefit from the VA to help her pay for her long-term care, cash pension. Or if you're in a nursing home and need Medicaid or at home and need Medicaid to pay for your home care. Tell us what Medicaid is. Everyone gets confused. What's Medicare? What's Medicaid? Yeah, Medicare is our health insurance for folks who are disabled and folks over 65. Medicaid is also a type of health insurance that usually covers something specific for folks who are indigent. So in Georgia, you have to have less than $2,000 in assets to qualify for Medicaid. And one of the things it does is pay for nursing home care, which over 60% of folks in Georgia nursing homes, their care is paid for by Medicaid. And so if we're trying to figure out how we're gonna pay that $8,000 a month to the nursing home, the vast majority of us are thinking Medicaid is gonna be the way to do that. And Kelly, just, just to follow up on that VA benefit, is there any income limitation on that? So the income limit is that your income has to be less than the cost of your care. And we have an asset test, it's $130,000 roughly. It's $130,773. Jennifer, now I wanna switch. So we've talked and you have both, both you and Kelly have said, you know, do a will, do a, a financial durable power of attorney, do a healthcare directive. And we've talked about the couple. Um, I don't want to finish this show without really talking what really becomes a problem that we see children, both at divorce and in inheritance. So, so tell us what the issues are, uh, and then we can talk about some of the solutions for when you have children with unmarried couples. 
In Georgia, if you have a child and you're not married, the father will need to legitimize that child. And that is an action in the superior court. Um, just because a father's name is on a birth certificate does not mean that he in the state of Georgia has any legal rights until he goes through the legitimation process. And the legitimation process through the superior court does give that child then rights of inheritance from its father. And typically what we see in those actions as well is visitation and child support being set up and a parenting plan as well. And if you're in a same sex couple and you have a child, is there a similar legitimation process or do you have to do something else if, if, if that's the child that you believe is, you know, from your, 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 your union? That's an excellent question. And I can say that Georgia law is evolving. Um, but what I would never heard that about Georgia law. I've, I've heard the exact opposite, but okay. It, it, it actually is. I mean, as, as we all know, it seems it, it tends to be conservative, but there are cases um, with same-sex couples that now that are, are giving more rights in Georgia. But what I would encourage all same-sex couples is to do a second parent adoption if, if you've not done so. So a biological mom and a lesbian couple, the, the second uh, woman should do a second parent adoption. And likewise, in, you know, at a gay male couple, both should adopt um, so that there's no question, so that, that we don't have to litigate these issues and, and we don't have to press forward. And if you go forward with the adoption of the legitimation, that will affect inheritance rights as well? With the legitimation action, those the legitimation I talked about was a straight couple. So a, a father, a mother, if that, and, and I've had a lot of legitimation actions lately because I think fathers assume if they're on the birth certificate that they're the father and that they have legal rights to the child. And that's not the case until they get a final order from a judge in the superior court saying, yes, this is the legitimate child of this father. Kelly, I know you wanted to say something. I saw your hand up. Yeah, so I, um, my wife was pregnant with our first child when Obergefell was decided. And so we were one of the, which gave us our marriage out of state became recognized here in Georgia. So we were actually one of the first families in DeKalb County that had a step parent adoption. Because at that point, I was legally married to my wife when our daughter was born. And so instead of having to do the second parent adoption that Jennifer mentioned, it became a step parent adoption, which my understanding of family law is that that is absolutely allowed in the state of Georgia and much easier than the second parent adoption that she mentioned for unmarried couples. And, and step parent adoption has been very common for years and years in, in straight marriages until Obergefell. Tell, tell our listeners what Obergefell was. So that was the Supreme Court case that brought marriage equality to all the states. So we had Windsor that gave marriage equality in the states, federal recognition of marriages in states that allowed marriage. And then Obergefell said, if you're married anywhere and it's legally recognized, all the states have to recognize that. So you've, you've both used, and I think Jennifer in particular used the term legitimation, and then there's also adoption. And, and for our lay listeners, can one of you sort of draw the distinction between the two? Jennifer, that's a great question for you. Okay. <laughs> I've, stumped, I've stumped the panel. No, no, I just didn't know who, who wanted to answer the question. I'm happy to answer the question. 
Legitimation is a process you go through a court showing, you know, through a paternity test that a child is yours. Um, you work out a parenting plan. Child support typically is implemented, um, again, depending on the party's finances, depending on the parenting plan. Um, that's statutory. That will be required. Um, but, you know, oftentimes if there's a 50-50 parenting time and people make um, similar incomes, there might not be child support. I just wanted to put that out there real quickly. Adoption is a different legal process. Um, it's highly specialized. It's not, it's not an area of law that our firm practices. We do refer it out. But you go through a separate adoption legal process with the court um, in order to make that child your legal child or quote unquote legitimize that child. And I want to underscore for our listeners, whether depends on the circumstance, whether you use legitimation or whether you use adoption, the end result is for legal purposes, that's your child that's for correct. all legal purposes. And that that's really important because we see the overwhelming majority of people when they die, whether they meant to or not, don't have a will. Yeah. And so if you are joint parenting and you haven't legitimated or adopted, you're going to find that, that your assets pass differently than perhaps you intended. And, and yeah, that- there, there's also a difference between adoption and guardianship. So sometimes you might become the guardian of the child of a family member or a young child who is a family member, which means that the original parents, the birth parents or the legal parents are still the parents and you have the right to take care of the child. You can enroll them in school, take them to the doctor's offices, things like that. That does not create a parent-child legal relationship. And so we've had some families mistakenly think the children they raised were their legal children and not realize they needed a will to make sure that child would inherit from them. And I do want to note for our listeners that you're not going to be present when that argument is made because you'll have died. Right. And that that's a great way to circle back what we were talking about early in the show, which is, um, uh, I guess, Jennifer, to start, t- tell our listeners the type of things that estate planning can do to be beneficial for particularly minor children, the things you can do in, in a will and otherwise to to make sure that after you're gone, things proceed hopefully as you had intended. Well, one of the things, you know, the most basic thing is you could include a testamentary trust um, in in your will for the minor children. And as they age out, decide different uh, age ranges where there's a disbursement of either the principal or, you know, the estate as a whole. More complicated trust, I refer over to Kelly or other co- uh, or other colleagues. Um, we limit ours with testamentary trust, which means that the trust is actually in the will. There are revocable, irrevocable, special needs trust, all these trusts out there. We refer, our firm does refer those out. We, we feel those are very specialized and, and Kelly is one of our, she's in our referral network and I speak very highly of her. When you, just, just for our listeners, when you say a testamentary trust, what you mean is if you die, your will will create the trust, but if otherwise it doesn't exist. That's correct. So you can actually have the testamentary trust language in your will. Um, and so once you pass, that will then sets up that trust. And, and how about things, uh, anything you might do in your will for the uh, care of your minor children should you pass? Yeah, you're always allowed to elect guardians. Now you can't draft around custody, meaning, you know, 
if if a, a father has legitimized a, a child, we're speaking of unmarried um, partners since that's our topic, uh, you can't draft around and give someone else custody if that father has legal custody. Likewise, if a married couple pass together, they can leave a guardianship clause in a will that the probate court will consider. It doesn't mean that it's automatically granted, but obviously it's very helpful for the probate court to see what these parents' wishes would be as long as custody of another parent is not involved. And Kelly, any, any other points you, you might want to pass along to our listeners about uh, particularly minor children? Yeah, so we also, in addition to the guardianship clauses and the wills, if we have minor children, we're almost always going to also execute a designation of standby guardian, which means if you become incapacitated, someone else is going to have the legal authority to be the guardian of your children for 90 days, which is about how long it takes to get through the court process to be appointed guardian by the court. So we've had this come up in cases where we wish we had it, where one parent's deployed, the other parent becomes very ill and needs to be hospitalized. Children get shipped to another relative out of state and that relative cannot enroll them in school because they don't have any legal rights over that child. And so designation of standby guardianship would have allowed the aunt who now has these two school-aged children to enroll them in school even though both the parents are alive and they're just not capable right now of doing those types of things for those children. And, and let me add a little bit that actually is relevant. And this would be tr true for everybody. Also give uh, even married couples getting access to medical records. So you want your, particularly if they're not, they haven't been legitimated or adopted. If you want your partner to have access, and this would apply by the way, to adult children. Once your children become adults, even if you're the parent, married or not, you don't have access to medical records. So you may want to think about those documents. We're nearing the end of the show, and I wanted to follow up on one thing that I'm seeing a lot more of, where we're having um, other, because of the technologies, whether it be in vitro, whether it be storing of eggs, or whether it be other ways to have children that are not the historical way. Are we finding, you know, for example, if you get divorced or you die and you have an egg that's being stored or because you're aging and you're choosing uh, to, to create an embryo just in case, or you've had your first child and you want it to be genetically related to your second child, you may store an egg. So we're seeing these things. How do that, is that something that's coming up for both for, for estate planning, how you deal with those things, including your children having those issues that you'll never have anticipated because you don't know them yet. So is there something that, is this an issue that, that that's happening in unmarried couples? I'll, I'll start with you, Kelly, because you're shaking your head. So a lot of that, because you're talking about storing things, it's actually contracts with the company that's storing. And so when you're, the conversation tends to happen with the fertility clinic or with the storage company, not with us as the estate planning attorneys. Uh, the law, and Jennifer, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the law is still treating that uh, as property or as genetic material, not as children. And so it tends to just pass with your other property, which is hard to think of it passing that way in the absence of you having a contract specific with that storage facility. And Jennifer, let me ask the question in the context of the, of, of the equivalent of divorce. 
So now you're breaking up, but you've got this genetic material property. Is that also becoming an issue in all their solutions? I haven't seen it in my practice, which doesn't mean that it's, it's not an issue out there, but Kelly's absolutely correct that it's being treated as property right now. And, you know, I have seen different contracts with different facilities regarding termination and how that property is, is, is treated. Well, great. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end of our show. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask each of you to, to give our listeners um, uh, what, what we often call a success story uh, within the context of the type of issues we're, we're talking about here. So, uh, Kelly, let me, let me uh, ask you first. Tell, tell, our, tell our listeners a success story to illustrate uh, how you have addressed successfully uh, some of the issues we've talked about today. Yeah, one of the greatest things is when couples are beginning that cohabitation and they're planning ahead about that cohabitation that we're able to help them get documents in place to anticipate some of that and go ahead and do their planning. And in their will, if they think they may get married some point in the future, we go ahead and include a clause that says, this will is made in contemplation that we may get married. So it's not saying they are married, but that way we don't have that issue that I mentioned earlier where your will's revoked by marriage. And so we're able to have those conversations. We know you're not married, we're doing this planning anyway, but if that ever did happen for any reason, you still like your plan. And, and I, I, I note the sensitivity that you emphasize the word may like five times. So, yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate your sensitivity when talking about it. Jennifer, I'm gonna switch it to you, but ask the question, well, I'll, I'll let you do a success story, but you could also do a horror story if you choose. Uh, I'll do a success story first. Uh, everyone likes good news better than bad news. I think one of my most successful estate planning um, situations occurred when I had a client that I drafted his uh, estate planning and he had four children and he wanted me to be present while they talked about what he had drafted. I, and and he, he wanted them to know why he was still alive, why, why he was distributing to beneficiaries some more and some less. There were tears, there were anger, uh, but two hours later, there were hugging um, and there were tears of joy because they understood what their father had done and they were happy that he included them in the process. I think that's very rare um, because as you mentioned earlier, uh, when people pass, they can't come back and say, this is why I did something. This is why I drafted something. So that made me feel really good to watch that process and see the success of that family and that family kind of get angry with each other, but then heal at the end. And, and that, let's, let, let's end with that because that is the, the answer to almost all estate disputes, which is if you have a candid conversation, you can probably avoid most disputes. And, and with that, Kelly, if some of our listeners want to get in touch with you after the show, what would they do? Absolutely. You can call our office at 770-854-0688 and uh, talk with our intake team and then get a call back from me or my law partner, Chris Brannon. And Jennifer, how would our listeners contact you? Yeah, I'd encourage our listener, your listeners to contact our office directly at 404-927-4050. My paralegal, Erin, handles all of our intake. If you want to email me directly, my email is jennifer at jgibbsfirm.com. 
I thank you both. Uh, as we're wrapping up our show today, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslewitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslewitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and you are, use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Jennifer Gibbs, managing partner with Gibbs Tillery LLC, and Kelly Napier, partner with Brandon Napier Elder Law. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters at Business Radio X. Thank you.